Welcome to Bible Study for Regular People. I'm Tana. Let's get started. Psalm 131, a song for pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem, a song of David. And this psalm is only three verses. Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I don't concern myself with matters too great or too awesome for me to grasp. Instead, I have calmed and quieted myself like a weaned child who no longer cries for its mother's milk. Yes, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord now and always. Psalm 133. This is also a song for pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem, a psalm of David, and it is also only three verses. How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony, for harmony is as precious as the anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head that ran down his beard and onto the border of his robe. Harmony is as refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon, that falls on the mountains of Zion, and there the Lord has pronounced his blessing, even life everlasting. The comment on this psalm says, David stated that harmony is pleasant and precious. Unfortunately, harmony is not always found in the church as it should be. People disagree and cause division over unimportant issues. Some delight in causing tension by discrediting others, Harmony is important because it makes the church a positive example to the world and helps draw others to the Lord. It helps us cooperate as a body of believers as God meant us to, giving us a foretaste of heaven, and it renews and revitalizes ministry because there is less tension to sap our energy. Living in harmony does not mean that we will agree on everything. There will be many opinions, just as there are many notes in a musical chord, but we must agree on purpose in life. To work together for God, our outward expression of harmony will reflect our inward harmony of purpose. And lastly, I'm going to read one more short one. This is Psalm 138, a Psalm of David, and it is eight verses. I give you thanks, O Lord, with all my heart. I will sing your praises before the gods. I bow before your holy temple as I worship. I praise your name for your unfailing love and faithfulness, for your promises are backed by all the honor of your name. As soon as I pray, you answer me. You encourage me by giving me strength. Every king in all the earth will thank you, Lord, for all of them will hear your words. Yes, they will sing about the Lord's ways, for the glory of the Lord is great. Though the Lord is great, he cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the proud. Though I am surrounded by troubles, you will protect me from the anger of my enemies. You reach out your hand, and the power of your right hand saves me. The Lord will work out his plans for my life, for your faithful love, O Lord, endures forever. Don't abandon me. You made me. The first verse he says, I will sing your praises before the gods, and I'll read a comment on this. Before the gods may mean in the presence of subordinate heavenly beings, such as angels, or more likely, it may be a statement ridiculing the kings or gods of the pagan nations. 
God is supreme in the whole earth. And one thing we do know about David is he worshiped one God. And so this phrase here must mean a metaphor for something, whether angels or a reference to earthly gods that other people believe in. In the book of Proverbs, we're in chapter 21, verse 13. Those who shut their ears to the cries of the poor will be ignored in their own time of need. Ouch. Kind of righteous justice, though. Verse 14. A secret gift calms anger. A bribe under the table pacifies fury. Interesting. Interesting. That's one thing I love about the book of Proverbs is most of it is like how to make good moral decisions, but sometimes it's not. It's more just a fact of life stated. And I think it's hilarious here. Sometimes he's stating, you know, bribes work as far as getting people to stop being angry and leave it to a king to understand some of these, uh, these kinds of facts of life as far as trying to get things done in his kingdom. Anyway, funny, but makes sense. Verse 15. Justice is a joy to the godly, but it terrifies evildoers. Again, not necessarily instruction for moral life, but more just a fact of life. Justice is a joy to the godly, but it terrifies evildoers. And who is the Lord of justice? but God Almighty himself, as he likes to remind us and hates injustice done by humans. Verse 16. The person who strays from common sense will end up in the company of the dead. Ouch! The person who strays from common sense will end up in the company of the dead. Man, if you lack common sense, it'll kill you? Well, I'm sure that has happened. Verse 17, those who love pleasure become poor. Those who love wine and luxury will never be rich. Isn't that the truth? Money is never enough to buy all that stuff because it doesn't fill. Verse 18, the wicked are punished in their place of God, in place of the godly, sorry. The wicked are punished in place of the godly and traitors in place of the honest. Verse 19, it's better to live alone in the desert than with a quarrelsome, complaining wife. That's right. Happy wife, happy life. Make her happy. Verse 20, the wise have wealth and luxury, but fools spend whatever they get. There's a comment on this one. It says, this proverb is about saving for the future. Easy credit has many people living on the edge of bankruptcy. The desire to keep up appearances and to accumulate more drives them to spend every penny they earn and they stretch their credit to the limit. But anyone who spends all he has is spending more than he can afford. A wise person puts money aside for hard times. God approves of foresight and restraint. God's people need to examine their lifestyles to see whether their spending is God-pleasing or merely self-pleasing. Verse 21, whoever pursues righteousness and unfailing love will find life, righteousness, and honor. Verse 22, the wise conquer the city of the strong and level the fortress in which they trust. 
Wow. The wise conquer the city of the strong and level the fortress in which they trust. And in my mind, they're not doing this with an army, but with intelligence. Verse 23, watch your tongue and keep your mouth shut and you will stay out of trouble. Oh, that one was written for me. Verse 24, mockers are proud and haughty. They act with boundless arrogance. <laughs> mockers are proud and haughty. They act with boundless arrogance. Man, I feel like I've been seeing that all over the internet lately with these people who bust into the the Florida schools or other school zones talking about their conspiracy theories like they are the smartest people in the room. Mockers are proud and haughty. They act with boundless arrogance. Verse 25, despite their desires, the lazy will come to ruin for their hands refuse to work. Verse 26, some people are always greedy for more. But the godly love to give. I love it. And if you're managing your money wisely, you can give and you can give with joy. Verse 23, the sacrifice of an evil person is detestable, especially when it is offered with wrong motives. And what are the things that we sacrifice today? And are there times where things are, quote unquote, sacrificed for the wrong reason, the wrong motive, for appearances or self-gain? Verse 28, a false witness will be cut off, but a credible witness will be allowed to speak. Verse 29, the wicked bluff their way through, but the virtuous think before they act. 30, no human wisdom or understanding or plan can stand against the Lord. Man, and that the truth. No human wisdom or understanding or plan can stand against the Lord. Yeah, he uh, created the entire planet and universe and put the stars in motion to do specific things. Thousands of years later, at the time of Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection... And we think our little plan we spent 30 minutes concocting is going to outwit his plans or, uh, yeah, no. Verse 31, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. In the New Testament, we're in the book of Acts chapter 17 and a quick recap last time we were reading about the start of Paul's second missionary journey Paul and Barnabas who had gone on the first missionary journey split up Paul recruited Silas to go with him he had a vision to go to Macedonia and his vision a man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So if it couldn't have been more clear, Paul woke up and said, well, I guess I'm going to Macedonia. And he did. Uh, they met Lydia, Lydia, who was the businesswoman who sold purple cloth, which purple cloth was generally sold, sold to rich people in sign of wealth. And she led her entire family into believing and getting 
baptized. Now, what was the message that Paul and Silas and also Barnabas and the others were preaching? It was showing people that this guy everybody had heard about, because Jesus was big news, right? This guy that everybody had heard about was the the one they had also read about in scripture for generations as far back as they all can remember, right? These scriptures talked about a coming Messiah. And so uh, Paul, Silas, Barnabas, all of the apostles and followers were showing them that's Jesus, right? He came, he filled all of these prophecies. Here's how. And at that time, it was all relevant news. You know, in today's day and age, you have people that argue Jesus never even lived. He never existed. I met a guy once who had, um, I really want to go over to Jerusalem, but anyway, he, he was talking about his trip to Jerusalem and he's like, you know, in America, people don't believe Jesus existed. He's like, that's weird. <laughs> he's like, you go over to the Middle East. That's not an argument. Everybody knows Jesus existed. He's part of the history of their nation, right? Like it, they argue about whether or not he was the son of God. God, whether or not he was divine, whether or not he deserved worship, that they argue about, but not whether or not he lived. Everybody, even even those who don't think he's the son of God, believe he was a real man who really lived. Anyway, he also said he told his tour guide he was surprised there were so many Christians there. The tour guide goes, really? You see that river over there? That's the Nile. Ever heard of it? Like, where do you think it all started, man? Like, of course, there's a lot of Christians here. Anyway, all right, so they're preaching about who Jesus was and what he died for and why he deserves their worship because he really is the son of God as shown by the fulfillment of all of these prophecies that they've all known about their entire lives. So, um, also in Acts 16, Paul and Silas were thrown in prison. Uh, God busted them out. And they decided to hang out and stay because they were Roman citizens and knew that they had one on the government there. Uh, the jailer stayed with them and was converted. And the next day, the officials basically had to let them go when they found out that they were Roman citizens who had been held without any trial. And that brings us to Acts chapter 17, Paul preaches in Thessalonica. Paul and Silas then traveled through the towns of Amphipolis and Apollonia, excuse me for completely butchering most of the names I'm going to be reading here, and came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service, and for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with the people. He explained the prophecies and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. See, just what I was talking about. Verse four, some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. Yay, women get a shout out. I love it. They were so insignificant in this culture. All right, verse five. But some of the Jews were jealous, of course, 
So they gathered some troublemakers from the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. So first of all, why would the Jews be jealous? Because the Jews in this particular context were seeing Paul and Silas as taking away their credibility, right? If the Jews weren't preaching that the Messiah had come yet. And then Paul and Silas come along and say, uh, no, he did. And we don't have to follow any of the Jewish laws anymore. The Jewish laws that these men have made their profession to uphold, they ruffle some feathers. They attacked the home of Jason searching for Paul and Silas so they could drag them out to the crowd. Not finding them there, they dragged out Jason and some of the other believers instead and took them before the city council. Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world, they shouted, and now they are here disturbing our city too. And Jason has welcomed them into his home. They're all guilty of treason against Caesar, for they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. Well... That's kind of their, um, that's their ace that gets pulled, isn't it? That's exactly what happened when Jesus was crucified. An accusation of treason against Caesar, and that is what pushed Pontius Pilate over the edge into having Jesus killed. Verse 8, the people of the city as well as the city council were thrown into turmoil by these reporters. So the officials forced Jason and the other believers to post bond and then they released them. That very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. When they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue and the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. And they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. As a result, many Jews believed and did many of the prominent, as did many of the prominent Greek women and men. But when some Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, they went there and stirred up trouble. The believers acted at once, sending Paul on to the coast, while Silas and Timothy remained behind. Those escorting Paul went with him all the way to Athens. Then they returned to Berea with instructions for Silas and Timothy to hurry and join them. So the believers recognize that the Jews from Thessalonica have come to town in Berea and are going to make some real trouble for Paul. So Paul um, and some of his, his peeps went over to the coast all the way to Athens and then his his followers came back to Berea told Silas and Timothy hey we've come to get you to come join us and they go and join him while Paul was waiting for them in Athens he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there he also had a debate with some of Paul, kind of famous for his debating. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, What's the babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, He seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. 
Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It sh and in, in uh, quote, uh, parentheses here, it says, It should be explained that all the Athenians as well as the foreigners in Athens seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. Ooh, interesting little cultural tidbit. These people, if they had, um, you know, today's popular magazines, they would be all over the latest gossip and celebrity news. Verse 22. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. Oh, he's stroking your ego a little bit. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, To an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. Brilliant. I love, I love this piece of scripture. He picks something in their culture that they can relate with and ties his message to that. He's like, oh my gosh, you've got an altar to an unknown God and you're asking me about my God. Well, let me tell him. Let me tell you about him. Verse 24. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they would rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. Oh, I love that statement. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Again, tying it back to their own culture. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commends everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. So clearly... A reference to Jesus and, of course, if they're in touch with the latest news, they would have heard about this man who is reported to have been crucified and raised from the dead. Verse 32. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the council a woman named Demarius, and others with them. And that's the end of chapter 17. Here's a comment on what happened in Thessalonica, right? Because he preached, but the higher-ups weren't having any of it. 
Thessalonica was one of the wealthiest and most influential cities in Macedonia. This is the first city Paul visited where his teachings attracted a large group of socially prominent citizens. The church he planted grew quickly. But from eighty fifty to 51, Paul was forced out of the city by a mob, which is what we read, and he went to Athens instead. And so even though the uh, big leaders rejected him, there were believers who remained there and formed a little church. He later sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to see how the Christians were doing. Soon afterward, Paul wrote two letters to the Thessalonian believers, the books of First and Second Thessalonians encouraging them to remain faithful and to refuse to listen to false teachers who tried to refute their beliefs. So if you remember in the beginning of the chapter, it referenced a man named Jason. When the Jewish leaders were looking for Paul, uh, they couldn't find him. It says not finding them there. They dragged out Jason and some of the other believers instead and took them before the city council. Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world, they shouted, and now they are here disturbing our city too, and Jason has welcomed them into his home. They are all guilty of treason against Caesar, for they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus, and they made Jason and his friends postpone. It says, we don't know much about Jason, except that he evidently was the local host and sponsor of Paul and Silas. Thus he took the heat for all the problems. Jason is just one of many unsung heroes who faithfully played their part to help spread the good news. Because of Jason's courage, Paul and Silas were able to minister more effectively. You may not receive much attention. In fact, you may receive only grief for your service for Christ. But God wants to use you. Lives will be changed because of your courage and faithfulness. I like that because of all the believers of Christ in the world, not all of them are Paul's. Not all of them are Peter's, right? Some of us are the Jasons. <laughs> Doing right and and taking some heat for it, but still playing a very pivotal role. Now, on the charge of treason, it says the Jewish leaders had to concoct charges against Paul and Silas that would be heard by the city government. The Romans, who ran the city government, didn't care about theological disagreements between Jews and preachers. Treason, however, was a serious offense in the Roman Empire. Paul and Silas were not advocating rebellion against Roman law, but their loyalty to another king sounded suspicious. So they kind of stretched things and yelled treason just to get the attention of the government. So verse 11, when they were in Berea, it says, and the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. But here's the key. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. The comment here says, how do you evaluate sermons and teachings? The people in Berea, or kind of our example here, the people in Berea searched the scriptures for themselves to verify the message they heard. Always compare what you hear with what the Bible says. A preacher or teacher who gives God's true message will never contradict or explain away anything that is found in God's word. 
Right. So everything Paul and Silas were telling them, they went back to the scriptures, looked it up for themselves and found it to be true, which works when the, the, the people have the education and literacy to read it. I'm assuming in this time they may have had to work with or go, you know, go through some people um, as a, as a group. So they had someone in the group who could read and read the scriptures for them to help verify for other people who couldn't read. Because that was part of the problem sometimes is only the educated religious leaders could read the scriptures. So everybody else just had to trust what they had to say about it, which led to some problems. All right. Historical tidbit here. Verse 18 referenced uh, that Paul had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in Athens. So who are those? The Epicureans and Stoics were the dominant philosophers in Greek culture. The Epicureans believed that seeking happiness or pleasure was the primary goal of life. By contrast, the Stoics placed thinking above feeling and tried to live in harmony with nature and reason, suppressing their desire for pleasure. Thus, they were very disciplined. In verse 19, it says, Then they took him, the Epicureans and Stoics, they took him to the high council of the city. And the footnote here says, the Greek reads, Areopagus. And I have a historical note here with an image of this hill in Greece. It says, the Areopagus is a hill northwest of the Acropolis in Athens overlooking the marketplace. The Areopagus also refers to the Athenian council or court that met there. The irregular limestone outcropping was also known as Mars Hill, Mars being the Roman equivalent of the Greek god Ares. Paul had been reasoning with Jews and God-fearing Gentiles in the Athenian synagogues, synagogue and in the marketplace for several days. Some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers involved in those discussions brought Paul before the council at the Areopagus. He spoke as an intelligent Christian believer who was able to meet the intellectual Athenians on their own ground. Some remained skeptical, but his address was convincing to a few who joined him and became believers. Be mindful of your audience when you share the good news. Make it pertinent to their situation. For a time, the council met on this low hill in Athens near the Acropolis. As Paul stood there and spoke about the one true God, his audience could look down on the city and see the many idols representing gods that Paul knew were worthless. I love that that little historical footnote puts a visual to this whole scene, right? Where Paul is up on the hill where the council meets and they can look down on the city and see the idols he's referring to as he talks to them about the one true God who doesn't need all this idol worship stuff. He doesn't need humans for anything because he created them, right? So all of these rituals and practices they were doing to try to please the other gods and to take care of their needs so that the gods would take care of their needs. He's like, that doesn't work with the one true God. A comment on Paul's little speech here. 
Paul's address is a good example of how to communicate the good news. Paul did not begin by reciting Jewish history as he usually did, for this would have been meaningless to his Greek audience. He began by building a case for the one true God using examples they understood. The Athenians had built an idol to the unknown God for fear of missing blessings or receiving punishment. Paul's opening statement to the men of Athens was about their unknown God. Paul was not endorsing this God, but using the inscription as a point of entry for his witness to the one true God. Then he established common ground by emphasizing what they agreed about God. Finally, he moved his message to the person of Christ, centering on the resurrection. When you witness to others, you can follow Paul's approach. Use examples, establish common ground, and then move people toward a decision about Jesus Christ. And lastly, I'll end with this comment. Paul did not leave his message unfinished. He confronted his listeners with Jesus' resurrection and its meaning to all people, either blessing or punishment. The Greeks had no concept of judgment. Most of them preferred worshiping many gods instead of just one, and the concept of resurrection was unbelievable and offensive to them. Paul did not hold back the truth, no matter what they might think of it. Paul often changed his approach to fit his audience, but he never changed his basic message. And I want to reread a bit of his message here. For in him, in God that is, we live and move and exist. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone, everywhere, to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead.